advertising agencies and marketing gurus, they've been proclaiming the rule of seven for decades. Have you heard of the rule of seven? It's a standard for getting your message across. Simply put, your audience needs to hear a message or see your brand at least seven times before there is any commitment to purchase or any act on that information that's been given. If that's the case for children, it really probably ought to be the the rule of 70, right? How many times do I have to tell you? Or if Rachel were commenting on this, the the rule for Corey would be the rule of 700. How many times have I asked you to do this? Either way, repetition is key in messaging. In fact, there's an old adage that preachers often live by in preparing their sermons. I was told it uh, by the pastor that I had growing up, and I'll relay it to you. He said, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. Like, if you cut out two-thirds of that, we could get home a lot sooner, couldn't we? Tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. I don't know if that's the wisest advice in sermon prep, but it is effective. Repetition is effective. As I was studying Ezra chapter 9 this week, I often thought about the rule of repetition, how it must actually be at work in order to get the people of God to hear the message because Ezra has been in Jerusalem at this point in Ezra chapter nine for four months and finally he sees results from his preaching. For four months he has been preaching through the law of God, the first five books of the Bible and finally something just remotely begins to sink in. The way the text reads from from chapters eight and nine is that when Ezra got to Jerusalem, he saw the people of God in a mess. it It was a terrible sight. The temple had been built, that was a huge accomplishment, but the people of God didn't know what to do with the temple. They didn't know what to do in the temple. You feel that? The whole book has recorded in detail all of the furniture and all the articles of the temple which were supposed to go back to Jerusalem from Babylon. And the people of God are careful to transport it all to Jerusalem. But it's almost like as it's coming off the wagon, okay, what do we do with this lampstand? Here's a a laver. What is a laver? Where does this go? What are we supposed to do with these different articles for the temple? They're diligent to build the temple, and they're wanting to establish the worship of God back in Jerusalem, but they have no idea how to do it. They see all the the furniture of the temple or of the tabernacle that labors, the altars, the lampstands, and it's almost as if they're willing, but they have no idea what to do. So when Ezra, the priest, arrives on the scene, he is described as a well-studied scribe of Jewish law. And he brought with him 38 Levites and 220 temple servants. If anybody can help the people of God decipher and know what goes where and how we are supposed to worship, it's Ezra. Some things are finally going to happen. This has been decades in the making, and God's people will finally get back to Scripture. For four months, Ezra teaches. Consistently teaching, preaching through the Word of God. He lays the groundwork for what, how, and why they should worship. I get the picture that he starts in Genesis, and as I said, for four months, he just consistently opens the scroll of God's law and teaches the people of God daily from the Word. 
And the most amazing thing happens. It takes root. It takes a long time. It takes four months. Maybe it's the repetition, but more than that, it's probably the living word of God interacting with people's lives, convicting them of their sin and pointing them to the Lord and forgiveness in him. Each of these are working hand in hand. What does this look like for the people of God to finally come to grips with what has been taught in God's Word? What's the response of hearing God's Word? Well, it's not a laughing revival. Have you seen those on TikTok? My goodness. It's not a music festival that takes place. It's not some mystical aura that settles over the people. What happens when the people of God finally hear the Word of God is a strong, gut-wrenching conviction because they realize, oh, we're guilty of a lot more than what we thought we were. Read again with me in verses 1 through 2 of this chapter what they're guilty of. When, the, when the, these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites and the several other countries mentioned there. Verse 2, for they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons so that the holy seed is mixed with the people of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. Haddon Robinson once wrote, Theological truth is useless until it's obeyed. Theological truth is useless until it is obeyed. I want us to feel that deeply as we think through this issue in Ezra chapter 9. It doesn't matter how much of the Bible you know if you're not willing to obey it. It doesn't matter if you have underlined it, highlighted it, memorized it, stenciled it on your wall, tattooed it on your arm. If you will not live by it, it is worthless to you. Do you feel that? Here the people of God are finally taught the word of God and they realize just how sinful they are. The issue that comes up first and foremost is this one of intermarriage. Now, I want you to hear me and hear me well on this. Uh, what we hear today as intermarriage is not the intermarriage of Ezra 9. In fact, I even debated on using the word intermarriage because we have made it something totally different in the 20th and 21st centuries than it was in 458 BC. However, I also know that the heading intermarriage is in most of your Bibles, and so I want it to be explained here. When we hear intermarriage today, unfortunately, we go to race and nationality. Hear me. That is not the issue here. God is not upset with his people marrying other people of different shades of skin color. He is not that petty as some of us are. The intermarriage issue of Ezra 9 through 10 is not a racial problem. It is a worship problem. I'll speak to this a lot more next week. I don't normally do that, but come back next week 
That's my teaser for it, okay? But God is all about grafting people of different nations into his people. He's all about it. You could see Rahab, you could see Ruth, just to name a couple of those. They're excellent examples. People who are of different nationalities who give up their old life and they graft themselves into the people of God. That is what God wants to happen time and time again. But of these women wanted to be, but of these, these women, they wanted to be a part of the children of God. They wanted to worship Jehovah. They wanted to live as God's chosen people. However, time and time again, God commands his people to not intermarry with other nations willy-nilly. The intermingling of his worship of this, the intermarriage here is that of worship of other gods. That's the problem. People who are unwilling to give up their old idols and they come into the people of God and they try to have worship of Jehovah and worship of another false god. He wants no part of that. Not at all. That's the issue here. Read verse 1 again, Ezra 9.1. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites. If you underline in your Bible, it might be helpful to underline with respect to the abominations. Basically, we've married these people who worship other gods and we are participating in the same abominations that they are. Do not read Ezra 9 and 10 as a story of just star-crossed lovers. He's a Jew. She's a Gentile. Hallmark, you know, all they need is like a Christmas tree stand and and Hallmark will jump into this, right? This is not a story of star-crossed lovers. Their parents just don't understand. That's not it at all. There is one word in the text that drives the point home. That this is not just, oh, just two people love each other and, and culture says it's not okay. No, no, no. There's one word. Abomination. Would you agree that abomination is a pretty strong word? I don't think that it's one that we throw around lightly even today. In which, I mean, we throw every word around lightly today. But the word abomination has still weight to it. A detestable act. A horrific practice. The book of Deuteronomy in chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, it actually lists the abominations of the Canaanites. You can read it later. They include necromancy, dealings with the dead in more specific ways, and worst of all, child sacrifice. Abominations. Horrible, horrific practices. Detestable acts. So again, I say, throw out your modern idea of forbidden love or star-crossed kids who just want to be together or people ought to be able to love who they love. This ain't it. This is not Romeo and Juliet. This is, I want to marry a prostitute that I bought on the slave market who will very likely steal away our first child and kill it as a sacrifice to her demonic God. If you want a movie, that's the movie we're watching in Ezra 9 and 10. Actually, it's worse than that. But you've got to come back next week to figure out why. 
all of the particulars of the abominations aside, the people of God are once again not acting like the people of God. They know what they're supposed to be. They're supposed to be unique among the nations, a peculiar people, holy to God. They know all of that. They're not so ignorant that they don't understand that. But they just want to do what they want to do. And for the first time in four months of preaching and teaching the Scriptures, this is brought up to Ezra for the first time. Look, I have no idea how this seemingly flies under the radar of Ezra for four months. I I have battled with that and struggled with that in my study. I have no idea why Ezra is surprised by this. I would think that if there were child sacrifice being taken place in the boundaries of Judah, I think that would make headline news. Or that Ezra would at least hear some murmurings about it happening. But it seems as though he, is so, he has been so busy, hard at the task, working in the temple, teaching the law, that he truly has not heard of the sin of his people. Or people just hadn't felt confident enough to tell him. Whatever the reason is for Ezra not knowing for so long, it doesn't matter. What is the response once he does hear it. That's the important thing. And for us here today, that's the important thing. What is your response to sin once it's been brought before you, either in your own life or in the lives of those around you? You're going to see this morning in the text that Ezra's response is physical, prayerful, and personal. It's physical, it's prayerful, and it's personal. I want us to look at his physical response first. We've read it a couple of times already, but it's helpful to read it again. Verse 3. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and my beard and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. At the time of the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God." As soon as his message, or as soon as this message of the people's living in rebellious sin comes to to him, Ezra tears his robes, yanks out tufts of his beard and his hair, and he falls down speechless, and for the rest of the day he fasts. Don't read this as a script. This is not, this is what you do whenever you see sin. Don't read this as a script. He's not just going through the motions. Nor should you read this as a prescription. This is not planned. This is real grief on display here. He tears his robes. It's not in the text, but I believe that it's safe to assume that we're talking about his priestly robes. He is, after all, a priest. He pulls out his hair. He pulls out his beard. But both of these things, robe tearing, hair plucking, they're actually forbidden for priests to do in Leviticus 21.10. I learned that in my study this week. 
In fact, this is one of the only two times in Scripture in which a priest responds this way by tearing his robes. The other one is a very sinful act that you can look up for yourself later this afternoon. This is uncontrolled sorrow here. Ezra doesn't know what to do himself, do with himself. All of this is some instantaneous act and not a choreographed dance. Ezra is told of the sin of God's people and he's hit with such emotion that he falls down to his knees, rips his clothes, and despairingly tears at his hair. And he sits like that for the rest of the day, not even thinking about eating, just rocking back and forth in sorrow, astonished. Astonished. Well, that's the New King James word, right? We read it twice in those few verses that he sat there astonished in verse 3. But if you're reading in the Old King James, you've got a, a different word there. It's a word that's much more descriptive and probably closer to the original language. It's just archaic. We don't use it in our day and age. The word is astonied. <laughs> astonied. When I first read it and studied this week, I thought, hmm, I guess that's just the old English way of saying astonished. They didn't say astonished, they said astonied. But, turns out, King James translates the word astonished in plenty of other passages of Scripture. Astonied is different. In fact, it's the one that my spell check had to learn in typing the sermon this week. It was used to describe those who in Bible times were being stoned to death as a means of capital punishment, particularly when the first brick would hit them in the head and they would be stunned, sometimes unconscious, but just stunned. That's closer to the original Hebrew. Ravaged. Laid waste. Desolate. There's actually in one context a form of forceful intimacy on another, if we can say it in those bland terms. Ezra is laid waste. He's shocked, speechless. I, I have no idea what to say or what to pray. Think of that, the priest the one who intercedes for the people of God is speechless. This is not a good thing. His priestly vestments are ripped. Head and face are bloodied as bits of his scalp litter the ground around him. This is no script. It's not prescriptive. What I mean by that is this doesn't have to be our response every time we are confronted with sin. Step one, tear your clothes. Step two, now that's nonsense. This is out of the norm. This is extraordinary. But the thing that I grappled with most this week is, why don't I ever respond to sin even remotely close to how Ezra responds? Think about it. When was the last time that you responded to sin anywhere near how Ezra responds here. 
Not even close. I mean, throw out the tearing of the clothes. We don't do that much anymore. Forget about the manic tugging at your hair or beard. When was the last time that you were struck with the seriousness of your sin to the point that you literally could not function? You were laid waste. It's probably been a while, if ever. So why don't I respond to sin like this ever? I'm not saying I have to respond like this every time. But why do I not ever? I don't like my answer. I am desensitized to sin. And so are you. You are desensitized to sin. We have for so long been inundated by the sin of this world, the sin of God's people, and our own personal sin that we are numb to sin. It's like a third degree burn, right? It deadens the nervous system of the burn victim to where they don't feel the pain anymore, but it's killing them. We might not feel the burn of sin anymore, but it's not because its burn is any less, it's that we are desensitized to its corrupting power. We are being killed by it. Not Ezra. Not Ezra. He had left everything in Babylon to come and teach God's people God's word, and he is so encouraged by their progress, at their eagerness to hear, at their readiness to obey, so that when he hears about this sin for the first time, perpetuated by the leaders of Israel, verse 2 says, he is ruined. Can't take another step. Can't say another priestly prayer. Can't make another sacrifice. Can't do anything. But kneeling on the ground, rocking back and forth, tearing out his hair. That's his physical response. All day he sits there, torn, bloodied, speechless, fasting. He's not alone. Verse 4 tells us that he actually has a host of others sitting with him. They are trembling at God's holy words. Isn't that good? And they're trembling at their nation's guilt. Finally, I can picture one of the Levites gingerly walking up to him and putting his hand on him, maybe shaking him a little and saying, Ezra, Ezra, it's, it's time for the evening sacrifice, Ezra. Ezra, you got to get up. You've told us, you've taught us about the evening sacrifice. We've got to be faithful to do it. Come on. This was one of two sacrifices that was to be offered up to God for the people daily. The morning was to be for sins that had been committed through the night. And the evening sacrifice, in like terms, it was to be offered up for the people for all the sins that might have been committed throughout the day. So I want you to get the picture here as we have haggard and torn Ezra slowly standing up, walking to the altar, but again, he falls to his knees. 
How in the world could he offer up some generic evening sacrifice for all of God's people for any sin that they might have committed throughout the day when Israel's sin sat so blatantly in front of his eyes? How can I go through the charade of here's a sacrifice for all of the people for something that you might have done when I know what you've done? I know what we've done. How can I just go through the the generic nature of all this? That's his physical response. Look at his prayerful response. Verse 5. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garments and robe already, is a good way to read that, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation as it is this day. And now, for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us as a remnant to escape And to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. Stay with me, verse 9 and 10. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage. He extended mercy to us in the sight of kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild his ruins, its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, What shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. If I could insert my own once again. Same song, 40th verse. God, we've sinned, and then you give us grace, and then we sin again, and you give us grace. And it's constantly sinning, repenting, going back to the sin like a pig wallowing in the mud, a dog returning to its vomit, the proverb says. It's a 10-verse prayer in its totality, 410 words, so it's too large for us to outline in detail with the time that we have left so far. So what does it all say? The prayer of Ezra is essentially this. God, we are all guilty yet you have been very gracious. Look at verse 6. He says, Oh God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God. The ESV says that Ezra blushes to raise his face to God. Most scholars believe this is a, a direct pointing to Jeremiah 6 where the weeping prophet is lamenting the sin of God's people and he says that the sin is so deep and they've been so desensitized to their sin that they have even forgotten how to blush. They're not embarrassed of anything. You ought to be, but you're not. Does that sound familiar of another nation? who has lost the ability to blush 
It seems like every day there is more crass and obscene filth produced by us in America than the day before. And we have grown more comfortable with it as the day goes by to the point where if you at all say anything about it, you come across, people will call you prudish or puritanical. And it's like, no, I, I just dislike that we have treated this sin in such a flippant way. Oh, get over it. Ezra is deeply disturbed by the sin of his people and in his prayer, he essentially says, Lord, quite honestly, I don't want to be standing in front of you. I'm ashamed. But I have to come to you. This is why Ezra's prayer is so good. If you don't hear anything else this morning, I want you to hear this. Our shame for our sin is no reason to stay away from God. Actually, it ought to bring us even closer to Him. I'll say it another way. I'm sure you've seen it. It's made its round on social media. I'm glad it has been uh, for a few years now. A few years ago, a pastor in Nashville, Jeremy Rose, I believe he's the one who, who wrote it first. He seems to be the first to put it this way. He says, religion says, I messed up. Dad's going to kill me. The gospel says, I messed up. I need to call Dad. Maybe you don't like the flippancy of calling God dad, I, I, whatever. We are to call him Abba Father. Religion will tell you, you've sinned. Dad's going to kill you. The gospel tells you not to make light of your sin, but the gospel says that when you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, the man Christ Jesus, so you call him readily and quickly. You come to him. The shame for your sin is no reason to stay at arm's distance from God. You ought to come even closer to him when you are more ashamed of your sin. And that's Ezra. He could wallow in the guilt. I've seen people do it all the time. He could convince himself, oh, it's not really that big, of, big a deal. He could just move on with his life, desensitize himself even more to sin. But he chooses to do neither of those things. He comes to God with the sin of his people. I love this prayer. I have read it quite a lot over the last couple of weeks. And one thing that has struck me is how repetitive Ezra is. I've heard people ridicule others for how they pray. I'm not interested in doing that, to be honest with you. But I have heard people kind of jokingly refer to those people who say, Lord, 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 Father, 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 God, God, God. And, and they just say the same thing over and over again. I understand that. I've heard some liken that to vain repetition, repetition. I don't agree. Eight times in this prayer, Ezra repeats, God, our God, or Lord, our God. And these are not empty words. He is reaffirming the fact that though God's people do not always act like it, in this instance in particular, they are far from confessing it themselves, Jehovah is still our God, my God. I believe that Ezra finds comfort in this constant repetition of, oh my God, oh my God, oh my Father, oh my Lord, oh Lord my God, oh Lord our God. But there's one more response to sin that Ezra exemplifies in chapter 9. 
And there's not one particular instance. Instead, this is an overarching one, both of the physical and prayerful response. It's a personal response to the sin. Have you thought it odd that Ezra would respond with the tearing of clothes, tugging of hair, fasting, despair, and shame over other people's sin? I have. You know, it's different in 2 Samuel 12. We have the story of David and Nathan, where Nathan confronts or rebukes David by saying, you have sinned. You are the man. You remember that story? It's different. We expect David, when Nathan points at him, to fall down, rip his clothes, tear out his beard, tug at his hair. We expect him to do that. He was the one responsible. David, you should be ashamed. You ought to stay up all night fasting and lamenting face down on the ground as he does. But Ezra, Ezra has such a personal response to sin, and it's not his sin. He hasn't divorced his Jewish wife to marry a pagan wife. He hasn't done that. He hasn't been involved in necromancy. He hasn't burned his child alive, sacrificing him to an idol. He hasn't done any of those things. Yet he responds personally. Take some time this afternoon and reread the prayer in verses 5 through 15 and underline how many times Ezra says, We, our, you'll find that Ezra never once says they, them, their. Not once. When he's confronted with other people's sins, he is reminded of his own sin. Hear me, Christian. When he hears of other people's sin, he is reminded of his own sin. There's no, thank you, God, that I'm not like. Here you have a believer who is standing in the gap between a holy God and a sinful people praying for the Lord to forgive. This is the exact same kind of prayerful responsibility that Paul took upon himself in Romans 9.3, isn't it? When he said that if his being accursed, get that, if my being accursed, if my being cut off from Christ could have brought the Jews into the faith, he wished it could have been done. That's strong. I don't think I'm there in my own spiritual walk. But aren't you thankful for someone who has been burdened by your sin? Not judgmental. Burdened by your sin. Enough to tell you about grace and forgiveness in Christ? Aren't you thankful that somebody saw the sin that you were wallowing in and felt burdened? I gotta pray for them. Not in a, how dare you, you're so disgusting. But in a friend, let me tell you about who I once was and what I once was. And now I've met Christ. You know, New Hope, the story is abound of someone in our church coming under a special burden for someone else. 
and praying for that person and going to that person and trying to win them or bring them back to Christ. They abound. Lord, lay some soul upon my heart and love that soul through me. And may I humbly do my part to win that soul for Thee. Who is the Lord laying upon your heart to stand in the gap between a holy God and a sinful person and say, Lord, our sin, it's higher than the heavens. Hopefully those stories aren't anywhere close to being finished and we'll hear some this week. There's the physical, the prayerful, the personal response. You know, as I thought about Ezra's response to sin, I found a greater example of another high priest in Scripture. And his was a physical response too. His garments were torn from him in pieces except his tunic, only kept intact because the soldiers wanted to gamble over it in John 19.24. His beard was ripped off his face, says Isaiah 50, verse 6. He went all day without eating or drinking, causing him to cry out at the last, I thirst, in John 19.28. He stood there ripped, tattered, and torn, unspeaking as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth, Isaiah 53, 7. His response to sin was a prayerful one too. In fact, he spent all night in prayer for others when they were so sleepy they could not pray for themselves. And as he prayed, the duress and anguish of his soul over our sin caused him to sweat great drops of blood from his brow, says Luke twenty-two forty-four. His response was personal too, although here is where the similarities of Ezra and Jesus stop. Ezra prayed as a sinful man for a sinful nation. Jesus prayed as the sinless God-man for a sinful world. Jesus didn't just align himself with us. He doesn't just pray for us and use inclusive language like we and our. No, Christ became sin for us. His is not just a personal response. It's a theological solution. Hang with me here. I'm gambling by ending with a theological term. I know it. Jesus was not just the literary everyman, as some religions will teach. Oh, look how good of a sacrifice, a good a man as he was. Oh, he's everyman. Every one of us could have. No, no, no. Jesus is so much more than that. And his response to sin is far more than it just being personal. His response to sin is penal, substitutionary atonement for the sin of the world. He paid the penalty. All that term means is what was what Martin Luther called the great transaction, his perfect life for my sinful life. I am guilty, unfaithful, filthy, fallen. He is sinless, faithful, pure and perfect. And when he, at the time of the evening sacrifice, read it in the Gospel of John, lifted up his voice and cried, it is 
finished, he meant it. The sin debt for all of humanity, for all of eternity, paid in full by the eternal God-man being sacrificed once for all on the cross of Calvary. Amen? What will you do with your guilt? You're guilty. I'm guilty. We are all guilty. What will you do with it? You can wallow in it. I've been there. It's weird how it feels good to just wallow in guilt. I can't explain it, but you know what I mean. I wouldn't recommend it. There's no life in that. You could convince yourself that you're not all that guilty. I'm not that bad. I wouldn't recommend that either. There's only death in that. What will you do with your guilt? Why not take it from, I don't know, a murderer like Paul? Who knew full well what it meant to be guilty? Yet in Colossians 1, he said, and you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you, 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 to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven. What do you do with your guilt? I'm so thankful that Ezra stood in the gap and had those responses physical, painful, or prayerful, personal. I am so glad that it wasn't just theater with Jesus. He paid the penalty for my sin and yours. Father, I pray that every Christian will be reminded because we too feel guilt often. I pray that we will be reminded that our sin has been dealt with. And now we stand, not in our own right, but in Christ, holy and blameless and above reproach. Lord, I don't feel like that on my best days, but your word says it's true, so I hold fast to it. Thank you, Lord, for paying the price for me, for us. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.